There's a spirit here. A deeper need to understand why I am the way I am. No matter what you live through in your life, you are going to do great things. That's something that's holding me back that was passed on. What goes on with the mind and the body and the spirit. We're doing soul work. There's a um, traditional um, law, and it's called Wa Chante Ognacha, carrying the people in your heart. It's a rites of passage to get there, to love your people, and also having a relationship with the natural world and having a deep connection with Unchimaka. And that's the foundation right there. Welcome back to Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native American resilience through and beyond trauma. I'm Susan Bolio, member of the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota and director of tribal projects at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children. And I'm Lindsay McMurrin, citizen of the Leech Lake Nation in northern Minnesota and director of prevention initiatives for Minnesota Communities Caring for Children. In the first four episodes of this podcast, we work through a series of concepts relevant to trauma, resilience, and the Indigenous community. Myself and co-host David Knoyer talked about historical trauma and how indigenizing trauma frameworks can restore the power to create our own narratives about the past and the future. We talked about adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, and the epigenetics of trauma, as well as the work Lindsay and I are doing to disrupt intergenerational cycles of trauma. And we talked about the concept of native resilience. Our discussions were guided by audio excerpts taken from a few public forums and from interviews and discussions facilitated by myself, David, and our intern, Sierra Edwards. This brought in the voices and experiences of community leaders like Bradley Harrington, Kim Lage, and Lindsay here. You heard her voice a lot in earlier episodes on historical trauma and epigenetics, and today she's joining me as a narrator as we pivot away from those conceptual discussions and towards individual stories that give us a more personal window into the practice of remembering resilience. Susan and I first met in a leadership retreat designed for Indigenous community members about four years ago, and naturally our relationship and connection grew from there. Uh, We found that we were both really interested in exploring the topics around historical trauma, intergenerational adversity, uh, and the impact on the developing brain. We've continued to present together around these topics um, across the state of Minnesota. Every time that we go out into the community to do this work, uh, we get invited to come somewhere else. The exciting part for me about being part of this podcast is that now we're able to continue to spread understanding and awareness around this information in a way that uh, can be brought to communities across the state and perhaps even across the nation. In this episode, we're going to focus on Janice Bad Moccasin. You heard a few insights from her in previous episodes. Today, we're going to learn more about her approach, from ceremonies and family homes to the front lines of Standing Rock as an Indigenous woman addressing trauma in her community. My English name is Janice Bad Moccasin, and my Dakota name is. Chaitanska Wachinwik Ah Tishunka Wapiawe. 
dancing white hawk woman and hills with her horses. Um, Demiet, that's what they call me. And uh, Crow Creek Hechia Tahawahia, I come from the Crow Creek Dakota Hunkbati Nation. And in 1983, I moved um, back to my homelands in Minnesota. Janice started on the path of traditional knowledge and healing work in her community at a young age, guided by family members. This work came to her less as a personal choice than as a mandate of legacy. She draws on an ethic and a set of values and practices that were passed on to her, in particular by her uncle, and the strong support of her mother. They challenged her, she says, to work towards the life she lives now. Whenever I did something, he's the one that trained me, my Uncle Joe Badmoxon. One of my main persons trained me to help smudge and talk. He was a presenter and um, to, uh, to, I was expected to know knowledge and stuff like that. So, so when I would share, he would call upon me to share. First it was, I was gonna smudge the people. That was a big responsibility, I would sweat. And then next thing I was gonna say a few words. The next thing I was gonna s sing a song. And I was so mad at him for putting me on a spot. And then, and then uh, my mother, she was one of the very eloquent women that just sat there. You know, I'm waiting and she, she would still sit in her poise like nothing. So that silence pushed me and pushed me and pushed me to do work harder and to dig deeper in my roots and to seek out stronger and to tough it out and everything. All because they didn't give me that praise and I never asked for it. I, I never asked, well, what do you guys think? <laughs> it was something unsaid, and but it was a gift, you know? It was still a gift. Then pretty soon my Uncle Joe, he got sick. And when I say working with grief and trauma and loss, well then he was providing traditional wakes and funerals and advising and counseling the family, um, maintaining family conflicts, which happen every single time. And when he got sick, he presented me this blanket and told Artyoshpaya, all our relatives, and he said, I'm not gonna be here much longer. So he said, um, my niece there, I've trained her, so she's going to take care of all of you and our other relatives. And so you, you give her that respect and you call on her. And that was a big deal. It changed my life, you know, because people asked, did you choose this work? No. No. And it's really hard. You know, I, I started to do wakes and funerals here. Janice's story makes me think about how traditional leadership was done and that traditionally people based on the skills that were needed in the community, the, um, the knowledge, whatever it was, whatever was needed in that moment in the community, the individuals with those skills stepped up. They were asked by the community to step up and to step into that space. And so Janice's story reminds me of that, even though she didn't choose this, often the best leaders don't. 
they fall into it because the qualities that they have are what the communities need in those moments. It's this balance between it's an individual journey, but it's also a collective journey because we're interconnected. What really resonates with me is this idea of her being given the opportunity, the time, the space to really step into who she was becoming in a way that we don't normally see in contemporary society these days. Oftentimes we think of uh, a leader as being the man, uh, the man in the room who speaks the loudest. And I think it's really notable and important in this case um, that it was a, a man being able to give that time and space to Janice um, to really become uh, and step into her role that she would hold in her community. Since Janice was first set on this path by her family, she has continued to build her role in the community. What I do in my day job is uh, serve as a, like a Dakota culturally restorative um, facilitator slash cultural advisor. So I do that in my job on a daily basis. Um, I've been here for going on 26 years now. But outside of my job, in my life ways, in my home life, in my tribal life, community life, I'm dedicated to our Dakowi Choha, our ways of um, practicing and living our culture, and participate in our ceremonial um, seasons, and I feel like I've been on 24-7 call for to be mobilized as a Dakota, a good human being relative, to serve as whenever I'm needed, you know, what, sometime it could be a healer practitioner, somebody needs some horse work, or somebody needs a sweat lodge, so I'll get that together, and somebody needs um, doctoring, then you know, I bridge that for the medicine person. So I'm kind of like a new forefront um, facilitator, you know. So that's important in my uh, my life way, in my identity. Kind of do some unique things. So on the one hand, Janice is really practicing and facilitating cultural ways around all the normal cycles of life. Birth and death, the seasons, growing up. She's living and spreading these healthy versions of indigenous selfhood. But this also puts her in contact with those historical traumas that were talked about in earlier episodes, from genocide, boarding schools, and the foster care system. So she's constantly addressing the same kinds of symptoms we've been talking about that have roots in trauma, like hypervigilance and conflict. She's doing a lot of healing work, but in a way that also already sees and teaches as whole, as practicing indigenous people. In any line of holistic or cultural work that I do, I was trained and mentored to always see the individual already healed. And so to make use of that suffering and to make use of that pain and to facilitate how strong you were all that time and you didn't know it. So let's create your vision. going to help you understand how these medicines are going to help you and how to sit with them. I'm not promising they're going to be happy all the time, but I, my job is to get them to Wodakota, to inner peace, 
to look at this pain and trauma and everything and make it as a friend. A powerful metaphor of um, in that type of situation is being able to make friends with a trauma memory, listening, crying, and it will the feeling will come less and lesser while this person builds on resilience of, of creating their identity, um, the foundation, and also the access to their traditions and the knowledge. Always remembering that this might come back to visit, and but less and less and less because you've done the healing work. So that's what that's about. So resilience, um, creating their access to their own spirit inside and their connection to Wakantaka, the Creator, Kichimanidu, to Mother Earth, Unchimakata Waupe, to understand her, and also the natural and spiritual and sacred laws, the values and the, the ceremonial knowledge uh, from elders and spiritual leaders, you know. And then they feel like they are in standing on their ground, strong, and they can recreate their dream. And what I get from that is I get to witness somebody transforming into that. And um, sometimes I cry when they leave because it's, it's like coming home. And uh, I can relate to that. I just feel so much gratitude to the Creator and, and I push up all the thanks to the Creator because that's what it's about. So it is really an amazing thing to witness people transforming before your eyes, healing at a deep spiritual and cellular level. In a way, it reminds me of, I've actually never been at anybody else's birth, but I've had four children. And I've been told by people who have been in the room when my children came into this world, what an amazing, spiritual, awe-inspiring event it is. And I imagine in some ways it's kind of like seeing the rebirth of somebody in on their healing journey, this incredible transformation from one self that they were in one moment to a new version of themselves in the next. Um, it's an incredible blessing to be able to witness that. And I think that that ability to be able to, like for Janice, to be able to be there with someone in that process holding that space, that support, that energy. And for her knowing, you know, she knows because she's been through this, what's on the other side of that. And it can be really hard, but you have people there supporting you, telling you, don't quit, keep going. And I feel like in a lot of ways, that's what Janice is doing in holding that space when it gets really hard and people want to quit and give up because they think they can't do it. She's able to be there to hold that space and say, you can do this. And then to witness that rebirth and transformation. Janice's descriptions of her work touch on a theme that we've come back to a lot in this podcast, connecting the new and the old, 
how reconnecting with our past can help us learn to reshape our future and the future of our children. I met Janice through David Knoyer, but we were also at a mind-body medicine workshop together. So Janice occupies this space of really having a traditional grounding, but working as well with new modalities and bridging them with traditional knowledge. But this isn't always clear what this means. It's something that we're still working out together. Right. In earlier episodes, you and David have discussed how science has often been seen as something from the outside, a form of knowledge that still represents the subordination of indigenous knowledge. There's a lot of reclaiming to do to put that knowledge to our use. But I have worked a lot with epigenetics, for example, which has very much confirmed a lot of indigenous knowledge about how trauma moves intergenerationally. Janice has a specific perspective on this aspect of trauma work, which reflects one approach to maintaining the sovereignty of indigenous knowledge. Well, I think the research and evidence-based information is important to our own Native scholars and, you know, research um, in their researches and, um, you know, around um, Native psychology and healing with traditions and such. Um, I am glad they're catching up, you know, um, and I understand, you know, that it has to, you, you know, we've always been have to have this stamp of uh, approval or evidence-based, but um, um, in my own healing journey from historical trauma, I went out on my own, and I know my framework, and I know what I did, and I know my model. It's imprinted from my ancestors. I think Janice's perspective is important because so often in our tribal communities, traditional ways of knowing are often challenged or not legitimized, like Janice was saying. And yet, there's so much yet that science can't measure, doesn't understand, and that doesn't then negate our knowledge and ways of knowing and being. Again, these ways of knowing are something that our indigenous communities have held for a very long time. And while it's taken time for the Western world to catch up and to accept these ideas, now that we have that research, that way of proving, so to speak, what we've always said, uh, it really lends itself to the credibility of the work we're trying to do in communities as a whole. Uh, we do trainings certainly with, with it within our indigenous communities. But we also work a lot with professionals who serve our Indigenous communities, who sometimes identify as non-Native. Being able to validate the claims that we're making in a way that speaks both languages, so to speak, is really empowering. I think the more that as Indigenous people we can stand firm in that knowledge uh, that our ancestors had and that's carried forward, we're doing what we need to be doing, and we're moving from the perspective and the lens and the place that we need to be for our own healing and well-being. that comes up over and over in trauma work is that these issues are not just mental ones. These histories, both the trauma and the resilience, are in our bodies. And getting past them isn't just about what we say or think. 
It's about how those thoughts come to life, how they are practiced. This fact is an integral part of Janice's work. She doesn't just talk to people. She brings them into relation with practice. Horses uh, mirror everything, and horses um, let a person talk non-verbally, non-communicatively. Um, lots of uh, things going on between, you know, that experience, and so um, they wouldn't even have to talk, actually. they just walk up to the horse, and our elders say that when you put the hand on the horse, you, you're getting healing already, so um, the horse, you know, will respond and, and, and mirror that to, to the person, and it would be very compassionate, too, um, with their, you know, they're such compassionate beings, the horses. So I always like to think, like, what would the horses do, you know, because silence speaks louder than words. Ever since I was a little girl, probably like most little girls, I've loved horses, but we always lived in town and I was we were never able to have horses. And so I was probably about 15 the first time I talked to somebody who I knew worked with horses. So I went out and, you know, first started just mucking stalls, brushing horses. I'd never been on a horse before. Um, but there was something about just being in the presence of the animals and the sort of calm that I would get while I was brushing them, while I was feeding them. Um, and I didn't realize then what I know now about how the nervous system works, and they were totally helping me to regulate. And I remember the first time that we were like galloping, it was like this scary, exhilarating experience being on these powerful beings. I just am ever grateful to the horses for the medicine that they bring. It's too easy to give you what you need to hear. You have to experience. You have to embody, you have to learn and transform yourself with that. The creator, the wakawayate, the spirits, and nature's law, and unchimaka, they're, they're the healers. And those ones are blessed to guide and convey those concepts to people to do their work. I spoke to Janice later, and I told her I thought those horses saved my life. And I didn't realize what powerful medicine the horses were then, but I recognize it now. Yeah. I think about uh, as Indigenous people and our connection to the natural world and how very often, um, because of concepts such as epigenetic inheritance, as well as just Indigenous ways of knowing in general, that sometimes we feel a connection through our bodies, a connection on the cellular level uh, that we may not even understand. Um, I feel like equine therapy, really uh, getting Indigenous folks back in touch was something that was really culturally uh, resonant with many uh, in our past, is another way of exploring that further. Oftentimes, because of historical trauma, not all of us have been raised in a traditional manner. 
that means that sometimes we don't understand the ways that our ancestors connected with the earth. However, in this instance, it really seems like there is a connection to that epigenetic inheritance on the positive side, where an indigenous person really might find that healing that they're looking for and may not even know why that connection is so strong. What I mean by working with the students and their families, healing intergenerational trauma was we understood, we had to understand the impact of our ancestors parallel to the horses that they, they've also had the experience of um, genocide and mass slaughter. So, so that's the reason why it's important for me to cover that historical trauma um, with our people to know that, you know, there's partners in this together, you know, that horse spirit. In 2016, Janice's work took her to Standing Rock, South Dakota. Much of the general public now knows Standing Rock as a site where thousands of protesters faced off with police and military forces to defend indigenous land from the threat of the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is true, but it was also meaningful in ways that aren't transparent for white Americans. More than just a site of protest, Standing Rock was a major ceremonial gathering. Janice went as both a witness and a guide to all the traditional ways that were being put into practice there. You know, I saw a lot of human ego, but all of us have waited for generations to do something great for our people. So, you know, we were in a spiritual revolution and evolution that time. And so everything just um, surfaced up to us, all our teachings that, you know, I thought what a blessing to have this space and to see the Ochete Shakui values, Unchimaka Tawa Upe, Ikja Wichashuk Wia Tawa Upe, the human man and woman laws working together, um, um, Mother Earth laws. People were having campfires every night, cooking with um, with the fire, um, doing everything, working from the ground up. And so um, I saw the blueprint of our ancestors come alive there. And so I feel like um, that could be. So when we hear the message, take Standing Rock home with you, they're saying, take this blueprint home with you, with yourself, with groups, your community, and platforms that create social justice issues for our people and causes. But Janice understood that this space would require a lot of healing work, too. Each Indigenous person who went to fight Dapple would also be bringing with their trauma and the historical trauma we all carry. She also went out to Standing Rock to support Native people in finding their way through the trauma and to stay healthy as they became empowered in resistance. In our Dakota Lakota ways, um, you know, there's, some, there's a way that we should set up that space. And so how I did that in Standing Rock was to really, I, I thought the only way I could reach these uh, group of young men, 
I've really got to come down to earth here. And I have to relate to them. They said, no, I'm all, we're all right. So we said, we, so we had to treat them like relatives. Um, I and my colleague, a friend, uh, Linda Gorno, who is a family doctor um, with integrative medicine, um, she said, "If you, yeah, you guys look like you're doing okay, but you really don't look happy. You know, you're telling us that this is a very beautiful place and you're happy, but your eyes say different. And she said, as aunties, we're concerned about you. And so I, joined, I added in with her and I said, you are our young relatives and we're concerned about you. Even today or the time that when you return home, I would not want any of this anxiety, sadness, um, hypervigilance to go into one of your organs and and it makes a person sick because that's how we cope sometimes so then i got a facial response of concern and so um they let us do um a breathing activity with them and then also um then we did a I did, I call it a mini equine session with them because uh, they were not going to go there with that, you know, um, any didactic of the mind body. So, so with that experience, I really had to um, dig deep in our roots to really indigenize. Okay, if I'm going to talk about breath work and facilitate it, I'm going to, I'm going to use it as Wania, creator's first breath. So, so it's receptive. So I'll use one knee, a breath work is moving through our bodies. And then guided imagery will be vision quest work. So what does it really mean when we think about indigenization? Oftentimes, uh, nowadays, we hear a lot about decolonization. While I appreciate where that concept is coming from, it also is speaking to that idea that we've always been people who are acted upon. I really feel like the concept of indigenization is very much so getting at the same concepts, right? Of looking at how uh, colonial mentalities are so embedded within us, even as indigenous people, um, because of our experiences, because of our ancestors' experiences, because of the systems we are made to, to live in, that instead I would like to reclaim that concept in a different way. Uh, to me, the idea of indigenization or indigenizing practices really has to do with inserting what's good, what's strong, what's right about who we are as a people, who we've always been, um, so that our communities can benefit. And when I say our communities, I'm not only talking about our Native communities. These processes, these ways of knowing and thinking are really going to benefit the world as a whole. Janice is talking about people being on the front lines at Standing Rock. And in our communities, people are on the front lines every day. In this instance with Dapple, people were also being traumatized on top of the traumas that they already carried. And so Janice's work was so important because it was about helping people to process those things there so they didn't bring it back with them. And people think that they have to do it all on their own. That's 
The beauty of the work that Janice does is that it's in relationship. The healing happens in relationship. We didn't drive or ride up to them and say, we're going to save you. We um, had approached them because of rel- some of our Ocheti Shakawi camp relatives that were from the Crow Creek camp, which, I'm, which I was a part of with them, um, they said, um, can somebody go check in on them because they're having a hard time over there. They're, you know, some, they're having conflicts. So, so, um, so I went and checked in on them. You know, I asked their permission if I could, you know, come in to their teepee and say hello. And so the thing was we approached them as relatives in a prayerful way. We offered them medicine. We smudged them and just checked in with them, see how they were doing you know, respectfully, you know, um, giving them their own voice, you know, how are you doing? And so, and, and they did, they, they checked in with us. And um, so we did some mind-body medicine breathing with them and, uh, uh, and with using our wania, our spirit breath and creator's breath. And so uh, giving them the idea of this is what Wodakota is, calmness. So they might be able to weigh the differences. Like, I might be hypervigilant and warrior up over here, but also this kind of feels better for me over here to be calm and to be by myself for a little bit, to have that space, you know. And, and I did tell them that I was concerned about them because the public and the media was really praising them for being warriors and their horses, but is anybody worried about their well-being and health? Thomas Barrett is a young man from Red Lake who raps under the name Thomas X. And in episode two, we heard him talking to a room of people about the anti-opioid work he's been doing with both music and film. Thomas also spent time at Standing Rock and has continued on to resist the Line 3 pipeline here in Minnesota. His description of the relationship between warrior culture and trauma is a tribute to the way that rising up and healing can coexist. Naturally, all these warriors have their own trauma to deal with, past and present. And it's the trauma itself that creates resilience. And there is no real progress without struggle. So it's connected very much. There's a strong relationship between our trauma and becoming a warrior. Because when we when we show resilience to overcome our trauma, to own our trauma and use it to better ourselves and better our communities, that's when you start to become a warrior. Reporting live from the Standing Rock Res, Dakota Warriors but to cut the snake's head. Off with its head, off, off with its head. No Dakota access, this is all for the kids. I think it's important to think more about what being a warrior really means. If you look at Western culture, the idea of fighting immediately comes to mind, being strong, impenetrable, always having to put forth that brave face. However, when we talk about indigenization, when we think about what it really means for us as indigenous people, instead the idea of protector comes to mind. That idea that being a warrior is protecting your family, protecting your community, and being in the best place to do that is also about protecting yourself, 
taking care of your own healing, taking care of those pieces of you that might be a bit harder to deal with, especially given our historical traumas and the adversities we still face today as Indigenous people. Janice has made a lot of sacrifices for this work and overcome a lot of obstacles. She's really forging a pathway. And you know what's challenging is I'm a woman. And I've heard by one man in a service back in South Dakota, he said, women don't do these things, but our culture is evolving. And so um, that's my challenging, own, my own critical challenging thought. Every single time, it's always an inner question. And so I really have to dig deep for the creator in my heart. It's going back to that, you know, just the, the love in our hearts as women and Native people. and We all get there. We are very strong and resilient. And our spirit is very nurturing and giving. Um, I've heard from a female elder, she said, back in, in the old days, the women were the spiritual teachers. And we had our medicine men who did the healing and the men, they were protectors, and they were hunters, and they provided. So, you know, we got a whole lot of roles mixed up, and a whole lot of roles not, you know, in order yet. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, um, the dream is that one day we will, I mean, you know, that our next generation will um, complete that for us. That's my way of supporting, you know, our children of Akaija, the up-and-coming generations. So, having the link of ancestors and then linking the future generations into today and this moment is um, honoring our past and honoring the future, you know. Western culture, we often think about things progressing in a linear fashion, uh, the easiest way to get from point A to point B. However, we know in our indigenous cultures, it's much more common to think cyclically, to be able to respond to the challenges that we're seeing, to be able to adapt uh, as we go along. And I feel like Janice's role and her willingness to step into this role for her community is a reflection on that. Sometimes I think in our communities, we get stuck in culture being stagnant a certain way, as opposed to the fact that culture is evolving and it's not stagnant, it's alive and vibrant. And we have to be willing to embrace that as a community. I feel like often that's a challenge. People say, that's not the way that we do it, or women shouldn't be doing that, or young people shouldn't be speaking, or those types of things. And I think we have to as a community, start to challenge some of those ideas of what we think is cultural and not cultural. I really think that Janice, both in the work that she's doing in her role that was traditionally a man's role, and then also in blending traditional and contemporary, she's helping the culture to evolve in a way that meets the needs of the community today. 
And that's what we need everybody to be doing. We want to thank Janice for telling us about her experiences and sharing her wisdom with us in those conversations. For us as practitioners, Janice is an inspiration and someone who represents the cornerstone of what we hope to achieve together by addressing historical trauma and remembering resilience in our Native American communities. Perhaps most inspiring, Janice left us with a comment on the generosity of this work, not just about all that she gives, but all that she feels she receives in return, all that she feels sustains her as she continues to fulfill the legacy that was handed down to her. Janice's work reminds me about how, as an Indigenous woman, doing this healing work is in fact part of our own healing as well. And for that, I am eternally grateful. And I've been driving on the road back and forth, losing sleep. Um, I pay for everything on my own. Once in a while, you know, somebody will help out with gas, but I don't ask. You're not supposed to ask. But it's reciprocal. Sometimes I get tenfold. Sometimes I experience miracles. The only blessing that I ask for when I'm driving home from South Dakota is that I have a safe trip home. And that's all I want for the whole my entire life in that moment. And that because in that moment and day is my entire life. And so when I get home safe, then it's a blessing. heard is from Sean Trottier, a Standing Rock Sioux and Turtle Mountain Chippewa artist and music producer from Spirit Lake Nation, who contributed original music for this episode. We want to extend a thank you to him and the other Native artists that contributed music, including Thomas X, Wade Fernandez, Leah Lem and Molecular Machine, and the Red Tree Singers. Inspiration for this series comes from a growing number of Indigenous people and allies who are working to address resilience in the Native community. This includes podcast hosts Susan Bullio, David Knoyer, and Lindsay McMurrin, as well as the other voices they gathered for this series, with the help of intern Sierra Edwards. For this episode, we want to especially thank Janice Bad Moccasin and Thomas Barrett, aka Thomas X, for generously sharing both stories and wisdom with us. Sadie Lutmer acted as coordinating producer on this episode, with sound design and additional instrumentals by Kaylin Keir. This series was supported by staff at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children and funded by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Center for Prevention. For more information, visit the podcast webpage at rememberingresilience.home.blog.